0: Well, good morning. Um, I will ask you for the last time this summer to join me in turning to the book of Jude. We'll complete our study that we've been engaged in for some time now. Last book before the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Uh, if you are uh, visiting with us this morning, seems like there are a number of visitors. We've been working for much of the summer through this letter This uh, seemingly small letter, just 25 verses from Jude to a body of believers. Uh, If you've been with us in recent weeks, we've been asking you to sort of juggle a little bit. We've been in Jude for a long time. Last week we were back uh, in 1 Corinthians, going through 1 Corinthians 5, and now we finish Jude this morning. Uh, I hope that it will have proved very meaningful and helpful by the time we're done this morning to have 1 Corinthians 5 sort of ringing in your ears if you were here last week uh, as we conclude Jude's letter. Uh, We've seen a lot going through these verses together this summer. And I want to begin by just taking a few minutes to summarize uh, some of what we have seen up to the point where we left off two weeks ago uh, when we ended in verse 21. Can you look up at verse 3 for just a moment? Verse 3 sums up the goal of this letter very well. Some of you are turning a page. I, my Bible has the whole thing on one side of one page, so I don't have to do any page turning. So mine is better than yours. Uh, verse 3 sums up the goal of the letter very well. There are two parts, uh, two things that are emphasized that we've been talking about quite a bit. Verse 3 said this. said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One of his purposes in this letter has been to give them confidence in Christ, confidence that belongs to them. Uh, God has saved us. He's told them in verse 1, they are loved and kept by God. Verse 3, he is writing to them about and within a common salvation. And it's important to him that they know that. He was eager to share that with them. But in verse 3 as well, we hear this, this sense of urgency as he is telling them, do not celebrate early. Yours is the victory in Christ. You are kept. You will be kept. We'll see that again this morning. But do not celebrate early. So he tells them there, I appeal to you to contend earnestly for the faith. And what followed that, from verse 4 all the way through verse 16, I mean, the bulk of this letter was a very frank picture being painted about their circumstances that they're in. We found that these believers are living in the midst of some very dangerous men in their congregation. Dangerous because of their influence toward ungodliness. How many times have we seen the word ungodly or some form of it come up in this this letter They're influencing those around them toward ungodliness. And that's taken two fundamental forms. First, it has manifested in a sensual, rebellious living that they're putting on display and leading others to join into as well. Verse 4 says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They actually take the notion of a gracious God and use it to teach that we should live in sensuality. Verse 8 says that they defile the flesh. So with this ungodliness is manifested in this sort of perverse, sensual living. It's also manifested fundamentally by teaching and living in a way that leads people away from the authority of the word of God once for all delivered to the saints. This notion of authority is a constant refrain. Verse 8, they reject authority. Verse 11, they perish in Korah's rebellion, which was a... a An explicit Old Testament attempt to throw off authority that God had placed over the people of Israel. We saw in verse 16 that by their living, these people show a distrust and a contention against Christ as the Lord of our life's path. They think of their life and everything that's come to them as fate or as coming to them at the hand of a God that cannot be trusted, that is not good. They will not lovingly, peacefully submit themselves to Christ as the Lord of their lives' path. All of these warnings about ungodliness are within that don't celebrate early category. Now, he is not going to end this letter in, a, in the don't celebrate early category. He's going to get back to the confidence in Christ focus, and that's where we will end this morning when we get to the doxology. But before he does that, he turns the urgency of these Christians he's writing to that he cares about so much. He turns the urgency onto themselves. And we saw in verse 17, he says, but you, beloved, and now gives a series of commands, the first commands he's given in this letter. But you, beloved, he says, verse 17, you must remember the words, the predictions of the apostles. Verse 21, you must keep yourselves in the love of God. These are the commands we've begun to see. This morning we come to verse 22, and we're going to hear Jude complete these commands. He has directed our emphasis so far toward the apostolic witness. We just saw verse 17, toward our own sanctification in verses 20 and 21. And today the third direction that he fixes our attention is to combating these ungodly influences that are existing within the church. He turns their attention outward to their brothers and sisters. What I'd like us to do in beginning is read, uh, for the sake of time, I'd just like us to read verses 16 through 25. Um, Our focus this morning is on verses 22 through 25. So find verse 16. Turn that page back to find verse 16. Uh, If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 16. These, those are the false teachers he's been spending so much time warning about. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember. Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And now begins our passage for this morning. And have mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we do give you thanks for this. You have preserved letters like this one for so long now. Your Holy Spirit led their writing in such a way that it is perfectly needed and helpful for every believer in all time. And God, now we, now we stand here, we walk this earth, and we now find the same help, the same comfort and focus and urgency to bless and protect us that our forefathers have found. Thank you for it, Lord. We pray as we do always, depending on your, on your mercy, on your spirit to enliven us, to give us uh, joy and hunger for your word. We pray for that this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of the day, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's let's set the stage for the morning for what we're going to do. We really have, uh, in verses 22 through 25, two separate matters before us. There's the matter of verses 22 and 23. You see the three distinctions there. What are these three distinctions? that he's making as he's sending them out toward one another. And then there's the shift to Jude's doxology in verses 24 and 25. So we'll look at our passage this morning in those two parts. What we're going to hear in verses 22 and 23 is extremely helpful to us. Jude is going to serve for us as a model of discernment in situations that are very hard to be discerning. The kind of situations we find ourselves in that we cringe and we sense very deeply how much we lack discernment, how much we need guidance. Situations that get really very sticky when we have to go through them. What is my Christian obligation to others who are being tempted towards some sort of unfaithfulness? What's my obligation? Is that obligation the same all the time? Should I always do, could put it that, should I always do whatever is necessary to be a positive influence to the people around me in whatever circumstance they find? If I don't do that, am I just loving myself? Uh, Am I failing to put others above me if I don't uh, do whatever is necessary in any given situation to reach out with the love of Christ? If I am to do that, are there any qualifications that I should be aware of? Any, anything circumstantial? These are very hard questions to struggle through when we're in the midst of these situations. And then in steps Jude. And he says, here is some discernment for you. This is what verses 22 and 23 are for us. What we find is that Jude gives three commands here. And the commands and the situations that he's talking about have some things in common Um, They also have distinctions. The distinctions are where the emphasis is. But we should notice some things that they have in common with each other. Let me reread verses 22 and 23 quickly so we can have them uh, at the forefront. Remember what he has said here. He says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, what do these three have in common? Well, notice that all three of these are directed toward their brothers and sisters in their church family. It seems clear that this is these commands are being given in light of the very dangerous situation that he 's warning them about in, in, in the face of these dangers and temptations that some are succumbing to. faithful believers are to go out, uh, so these commands are all directed toward those in their sphere, their brothers and sisters here. And all of the commands have the same basic end. For every one of them, the end is the same. Seek to undo the damage that lies and perverse doctrine have started to cause. Be outward focused. Be urgent in your showing love, being an instrument of God's love to those around you. Notice, too, that all three of these involve deliberate, not just love, but hope extended towards someone that has gone astray to one degree or another. We are, do you see, even though there's going to be a progression of severity here, in in none of these three are we permitted to grow hardened, hateful, cynical. All three scenarios are a command to go in one way or another. There are actually only two actions that are prescribed here. The first and third scenario, I read it from the ESV, and it changes them a bit. The first says, act mercifully, and the third says, um, show mercy. It is exactly the same words. There is no difference at all. So what we're being commanded toward here in these situations are acting mercifully toward someone else, or the second scenario, it actually says, save, be an instrument of rescue. These are the two actions that we're being pushed toward in these commands. Now, that's what they all have in common. But the significant thing about the three is the distinctions between them. This is a list of three situations, and the list goes in, I couldn't decide whether to say descending order or ascending order. It goes, it, it, it develops in the severity of the situation, do you understand? So, it really is a downward spiral, but the severity is ratcheting up. So, you can pick if you want to think of this as ascending or descending, but they are going in order. You have some in verse 22, it says, who are doubting or wavering. There are some at the first of verse 23 who have fallen into the fire and need to be snatched out of it. They've not been consumed by the fire, but they need to be snatched out of it. And then you have others at the end of 23 who have gone and become defiled themselves by the sin of the false teachers. Let's look at each of these. The first is described by this word doubting or wavering. So he says, have mercy on those who are doubting. This is a word that speaks of the experience that we know, of inner turmoil. This person is wrestling in their mind, in their heart, maybe with confusion, maybe with temptation because of something attractive in what's being offered and the arguments that are being made. We've seen these false teachers not just uh, attract with their alternate lifestyle, but give theological reasons why it's okay, why it's even something to be celebrated. And something in this is causing some to waver in their mind. Their faith, or we could say maybe um, their faithfulness, is wavering. And this is doubt that's stemming from being offered Really, we could say it quite simply, the doubt is coming from false ideas being offered to them about the gospel, about matters that we now know by certain names, certain doctrinal names, that these things are clear as day in the descriptions of of the false teacher's teaching. They're being challenged on matters that we would call today justification by faith alone. What's that really mean and what does it look like? Um, Our doctrine of sanctification. What does the Bible tell us about what God is doing in us in transforming a people to himself? Um, The the doctrine of the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're out and out redefining it. As he's already described, that they are, are rejecting the lordship of the Lord Jesus. And so Jude, in this first scenario, is describing a people who have become confused about what is right. What is permissible? And in that context, as they stand there, that could go places. But as they stand there, wavering, doubting, the command that accompanies the situation is this: Have mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Then there is um, there is so much clarity in the simple way that he commands us in this. One commentator described a, uh, a situation that this, uh, that this bears on. And it's very helpful to hear this. He said, in some Christian settings, there is such a zeal for pure doctrine. Should we be zealous for pure doctrine? You, you better believe it. In some Christian settings, there is such a zeal for pure doctrine that it is very hard for people to admit that they have questions and misunderstandings. And it is difficult to find a friend who will sit and listen and talk things through. Jude says that our willingness to do that must be characterized by mercy. And the reason lies in verse 21, end quote. Did you notice the connection between what we just finished with in verse 21 two weeks ago and what he says here? He has just told us that we're a people characterized by a patient waiting, and specifically waiting for mercy. We're a people who know ourselves to be in need of mercy, and we are a people who wait for mercy. Jude prayed for mercy in verse 2, to be multiplied to us. And what he says as he speaks into this first situation is that when when we find those near to us who are struggling in this way, with doubt, they're not to be met with impatient harshness. And neither are they to be met with solitude that creates vulnerability. They are to be met with Christian brothers and sisters who care about them. They're to be met with patient displays of mercy. This is his uh, diagnosis, his prescription for this scenario. I think of the, the, the picture that that commentator described, a place where zeal for doctrine creates an atmosphere where those who are doubting and struggling in their mind feel unsympathetic responses, impatience. And it makes me so thankful for what we have here in this body. The true love, the sense of um, comfort and patience with one another, the the awareness that we have that we are all works in progress. It makes me pray and uh, that, that our church family would never come to create a sense like that for someone who is doubting, who is wavering, that they would never feel alone or unapproved of as they struggle in those ways. We know what it feels like to be in that time and to be met by this, don't we? There are, I think, two things that we find when we're in that place and we are responded to with patient mercy. We immediately find peace in the midst of struggle. Not the resolution of our doubts, but peace. It has a peace-inducing effect when someone comes, knows our doubts, and puts their arm around our shoulder instead of pushing us away. And part of why it creates peace is because of the second thing it creates, which is a sense of confidence. You know what it's like when a child falls and scrapes their knee and they immediately hear the shriek of their parent runs over wide-eyed terrified what does that child do they cry right all their worst fears have been confirmed this is life and death and probably the second it's clear because of the response but put the same fall and scrape in a different scenario where they are met with a you know it could be any number of things Uh uh-oh and you know a sense of peace, a sense of confidence that this is is going to be okay and they immediately adopt the confidence themselves. When we reach out to those who are doubting and show mercy it can have the same effect. Again, not to immediately solve the wrestling but to introduce into it a sense that maybe this is going to be okay and maybe I'm not alone. This is what he commends to us when our brother or sister is doubting, when they're wrestling with important thoughts, confusions, maybe even temptations, God's word calls on those that God has put into their lives to reach toward them in mercy. And as we hear God give that diagnosis and that prescription to us, can't we sense the heart of our loving, patient, merciful Father. We represent Him when we live that way. But notice how the urgency is ratcheted up immediately as we come out of 22 and come into verse 23. He said, Have mercy on those who doubt. Now verse 23. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. This is not the same situation anymore, is it? We've gone from have mercy to save Using that word conveys that there's a this is a dangerous situation that we're in here. Right? Think of what's changed in moving from situation number one to number two. Now we are to snatch them out of the fire. That's not a gentle word. It's an urgent word, and sometimes it's a violent word, depending on where it's used and and shows up. There's a few places where it is used elsewhere. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Judges 21. There's a crazy story. It's a really bad time in Israel's uh, history. And the tribe of Benjamin has just about been wiped out by war. They're in danger of actually going extinct. And so the great plan they come up with in that chapter is to go over to the city of Shiloh, where they're about to have a big festival. And when their ladies run out to participate in the dance, they're going to go out there and grab themselves a wife so that they can repopulate their uh, their tribe, and it uses this word. Their plan is to, it says, snatch each man his wife. Right? That's not going to be gentle. It's going to be quick. The men are all there, so you got to get out of there quick. This is an urgent and a violent uh, move. And this is what we're to do with those that we love. When they find themselves in this place, sometimes what love looks like is snatching them out of fire. And in so doing, we will actually be an instrument of God's saving. Because the fire that Jude speaks of is the fire of God's judgment. That's the fire that they're in danger of and the fire that they're to be snatched out of. Judgment is spoken of in terms of fire throughout the Bible, old and new. He already mentioned it in verse 7 of his letter here. And in fact, what hes most everyone believes, he's directly alluding here to a story in Zechariah. Zechariah 3.2 Paints a picture, it's it's another incredible picture in the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah the prophet receives a vision and he sees Joshua the high priest standing before God, and standing at his side is Satan. And Satan stands there to accuse him before the Father. And in chapter 3, verse 2, God speaks. It says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And don't make the mistake I've made for much of my life. When you hear that "brand plucked from the fire," this is not a branding horses kind of thing. That word is a is a type of stick. It's a stick. He's a stick that was in the fire to be consumed, and God has chosen to pluck him out of the fire before he is consumed. And that's the person that's being described here in verse twenty-three. This person has not yet been set aflame by the fire, but is in a position where they are primed for the fire. And let's be reminded here for a moment that both Jude and 2 Peter, as they speak about these situations, emphasize that the way the false teachers have led some to this point is by leading them, it says, Peter sums it up in 2 Peter 2.10 in this way, that they indulge in the lust of defiling passion And despise authority. We've seen that a number of times this summer. Those people who need rescuing are not simply wavering in mind now. Their wavering means they're very near to actually falling into the impurity themselves. They've they've begun to embrace ideas and lifestyles that prime them for the judgment of the holy God. And in this situation, Jude says, snatch them out of the fire. Now, we're faced here with an inevitable truth that we don't like. There's only one thing that this means, and that is that sometimes uncomfortable confrontation will be the only loving action that can be taken. That's what this means. And the problem is that most of us hate confrontation. We we hate it. So what can we say about it before we move as fast as we can away from the statement of confrontation and go into the third situation? What should we say about this? It is okay. If I'm someone who has never engaged in any confrontational rebuke in my life, that is okay if nobody in my inner circle has ever walked themselves into a dangerous spiritual place. But if people have in fact walked to those places and they're people that God has put into my life, if they've walked themselves into dangerous spiritual places and I have never engaged in any confrontational rebuke in my life, there is only one thing that that means. It means that I have been willing to sacrifice the eternal safety of people I say I love. In exchange for my personal comfort and the approval of man. And there's a shorter way to say what that means it means that I am a coward. I'm a coward. That's a biblical term, it's not an insult. It's a word, thankfully, that still accompanies for us in our society today, a feeling of great shame. It's a shame to be a coward. And listen, it should be. It should be a shame. God commands us to be willing to be bold for his sake. And do you remember that Revelation 21.8, which lists those who stand condemned before God, it begins its list with the cowardly. This is no small matter. May God grant for us a love for others that is greater than our love for personal comfort and approval. The end of verse 23, see, we're done with that now. So the end of verse 23 moves us into a third group of people. And here, for the first two groups, he emphasized something true about the ones in danger. This time, the distinction he's highlighting uh, is about the different posture that we should approach them in. He has said, have mercy on those who are doubting. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now he says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That does make clear that they have defiled themselves. There is a garment stained by the flesh. But the focus and the distinction here is on the different approach to them. Now, recognizing as we have the downward descent that's happening with these three, this might not be what we expected to hear. He said, show mercy in this situation as it degenerates. We save by snatching out of the fire what would we expect in the third scenario? Maybe jump into the fire and grab them out and roll them around. Something more extreme, right? This is is an increasingly serious situation. So where is the increased drama here in the response? But you see, there is an increase. The sin is increased. The danger for that individual is increased. But now we have the same command given as we were given the first time. Have mercy. Exactly the same. But now, two qualifiers have been added to this command to show mercy. We are to exert that mercy now fearfully, with fear. And he says, as you seek to be an instrument of mercy, you must be careful to do so hating the garment stained by the flesh. Now, we shouldn't let the qualifiers overshadow the main command. We can see here still, as we've said, we find no permission to write someone off as hopeless as we are in their life and are seeking to show mercy to them. We are to desire to be instruments of God's mercy where it's needed. But these two qualifiers are here for a reason. And they are what sets this third scenario apart. The first is, as we've said, our mercy extending is to be done fearfully. You can even picture it kind of with a reach. I still desire to extend mercy, but what was a reach is suddenly now a posture of nervousness and caution. My posture toward them has changed. Why? Because now there is defilement involved. Now there is out and out defilement. Defilement usually emphasizes specifically the outbreaking of sexual sin, but also it's used in a more general way as an expression of simply when that happens in any sphere, when the deep, treasured sins of the heart break out into the open. They pour out and they get on stuff. They get on me, they get on you if you're close enough. There has been defilement. Jude says this is what we would call a game changer. And so we are to respond to it as a different situation. We're to be afraid now. The second qualifier is what describes the source of the fear. He says, we are to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The word garment there is not a general clothing word. It's a word that refers to the inner garment, the one worn closest to the skin. The word stained there comes out of the Hebrew, which the word in Hebrew means excrement, okay? This is supposed to disgust, and the best picture we can use on a Sunday morning is diapers. Let's think of a baby and diapers, right? Um, there are two realities that you're exposed to when diapers become a part of your life. We are almost done with diapers being a part of our life. It's about to be a distant memory, when, when you have diapers involved in your life, you're with you're young babies and you're responsible for that, that introduces a couple of realities and risks to it. The first one is the most obvious. It is uh, now within the sphere of possibility that in, uh, by virtue of helping and being a faithful individual, you run the risk of getting defiled yourself. You, you actually literally do, Right? There's a simple principle we can take from that that is part of what Jude is talking about. Close contact with sinful situations puts us at risk of defilement ourselves. It just does. If I think it doesn't, then I'm going to ignore him here, and I'm going to reach too far in, and I'm going to find out that he was right after all. And so he comes and gives us discernment and says, look, there are these situations where you are to show mercy with fear as you hate the garment stained by the flesh. The second reality that you're exposed to with diapers, um, I, I experienced this in full. When we, when we first started having kids, I'd never changed a diaper in my life. All right Number one was number one. And so I, I experienced this progression that happens through repeated exposure, which is you go from being completely grossed out to surprisingly quickly, it's so not that big a deal anymore, and then through more exposure, you don't even think about it anymore, right? It's, in that context, that's a mercy from God. It's kind of sweet to think about a, a new dad becoming comfortable with changing diapers. That's a sweet sort of a, of a thought. And there's a principle we take from that. Repeated exposure to diapers breeds a diminished sense that this is a big deal. It's not sweet Anymore, when we go out of the metaphor and we go back to what we're talking about, right? The defilement here represents sin. And can you see the great danger that is posed in these situations? Not only the danger of falling into that sin yourself, although that is a part of what Jude's concerned about, but also the danger of growing complacency with sin that we are immediately threatened with through repeated exposure, near exposure. There are a great many applications that we could take from this in our world today. I think of those, those within church context dealing in their ministry with specific sinful situations and how this can present itself. I think of the ways that we are struggling uh, as a church, national and global, with the rising acceptance of homosexuality. It is not at all common to see in books... Uh, whole ministries, etc., uh, from people whose life is regularly coming into contact with homosexuality, to see a development of downplaying the actual sinfulness of the situation, and you, we can easily sense how that would happen because of the way th- of, of of their life experience. Now, this truth of the sin of homosexuality has faces and names with it people that you get to know and you sense the kindness that can be there and, the, and it's through that close exposure which is good we don't hold away from sinners we reach out and seek to love but we must do so with wisdom one example of this has come up in the last year, year and a half within the PCA denomination there's been a, a, what's called the Revoice Conference that has become a national experience now and their concern stated is to support those struggling with same sex attraction, quote, so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Now, that sounds great, right? Do we want people to flourish as they observe the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality? I don't, it doesn't sound bad. But what becomes abundantly clear as you start to see what's happening in this ministry is that for the people organizing the events, it seems that this effect has taken place because of the constant exposure. It's led them to commit what we'll call the diaper fallacy. The significance of the sin has been diminished. And so the focus changes ever so slightly. Here are two titles of the messages at their national conference last year. How does this sound to you? Number one, journey to embrace, colon, a conversation on empowering the church to embrace the LGBT plus community in fresh ways. Do you hear the potential? <laughs> Number two, coming out in the shadow of the cross, queer visibility as redemptive suffering. Flags are going up. And you hear things, you read things. We had Denny Burke here last year address some of these matters. And he spoke of the way that these issues are being twisted and turned by those with very genuine Christian hearts and desires to reach out. That's just one example. It might be even better to exemplify this by just speaking in generalities about how much harder it can be to recognize sin and to feel toward it like we ought When we leave the theoretical world and we get to the world of people that we know, it gets harder. We have said, and it's true in some circumstances, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that expression? Well, familiarity also breeds a sense of justified excuse-making. Where we find ourselves saying things like, well, yes, I know, I know that they did that, but you don't know what they've been through. You don't know how hard this has been for them which, of course, is true. But do you hear what comes with that? Have more patience with this sin. Don't think so uh, worriedly and cautiously about this sin. Uh, And if it were any other person, you would be crystal clear about what is right and wrong. Now that it's this person, it's more difficult. We know that that is our experience. And so we thank God for his word. Which brings light into some of our most difficult and personal situations. We we hear the warning here. Close contact with grievous sin must be viewed fearfully, Jude says. Out of fear of defilement myself, but also out of fear of compromise and complacency. In short, when he says here, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The reminder for us, the emphasis, is that sin is to be hated. Sin is Worthy of hatred. We do not hate the people around us. But we must be able to be wise. To reach out. Always hating the sin. Because sin creates a barrier. Between them and God. And it creates a barrier in our own relationships. Sin sets up a barrier between us. And that barrier is right and proper. Sometimes we sit beside that person and we put our arm over their shoulder and encourage them. Sometimes we grab them and we try to yank them to safety. But sometimes the situation will be such that certain forms of direct contact should no longer happen. And there should be a hazmat suit involved. A hazmat suit for our minds, for our affections, and for our logical and sentimental commitments to the standards of Scripture. We have to know that those things are not above attack in us. They are susceptible. One final thought before we move to Jude's doxology, and that is a question. Who is equipped to do these things? Can I read to you what Paul says in Galatians 6.1? See if you hear any of these ideas we've heard from Jude in what Paul says. Paul says this, Galatians 6, one, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You think he's talking about the same sorts of situations that we're faced with in this passage? We are equipped to encourage each other, to protect each other, to suit up and go on dangerous missions for the people that we love, to the extent that we ourselves are living spirit filled lives. That's the extent to which we are equipped to do these things. And boy, do we need to hear that. That definitely creates for us a sense of urgency about our own spiritual walk. If you know that at this season in your life, if you think about how you are doing right now before the Lord, and you know that your pursuit of spiritual disciplines, your life habits have gotten lax, Be reminded this morning that your sanctification before God is about much more than just you. Grow weak and atrophied in your walk with the Lord, and you leave the people you love with one less person that is ready to come to their aid. Turning our attention now to verse 24, let me reread verses 24 and 25 here this beautiful doxology. He ends the letter this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's focus on verse 24 first. There has been an undeniable influ- uh, uh, emphasis here in Jude on the real requirement upon us to persevere in our faith, to keep ourselves in the love of God. Verse 21 sad. Jude ends his letter by reminding us yet again that while that requirement is legitimate, it's not imaginary, we have obligations and requirements placed upon us, yet in a concurrent fashion, we live faithfully as children of God only because of the sustaining grace of our Father. That's why. That's how. And as a result of knowing that, we live confident lives. We fall and we rise again, because we know that we are being led by a God who is able to keep us from stumbling. And it is His eternal plan in Christ. It is that everyone who who He has chosen as vessels of mercy It is his plan for all of them to be presented before him on the last day, blameless. I mean, think of how he describes it here. Creatures of such perfect holiness that they can come into his presence and feel great joy rather than horror. That's quite an accomplishment. If he can do that for me, that's quite an accomplishment to make it that sinners might actually stand with joy in the presence of the glory of God. Whoever can make that happen must be mighty indeed. And Paul speaks of this might in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Just what kind of power are we talking about here? He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's pretty strong what what power does it take to so clothe me with a righteousness not my own what power does it take to do that such that i will stand blameless before him one day it takes the power of one who can speak things into existence that's the power that is required but that's the power that he has worked in his children so we get up again when we fall because that's the god that we serve Both of these verses are beautiful. Verse 25, do I get to pick one? Maybe not. Verse 25 is very beautiful. But in the context of what we've seen in the whole letter, it paints an especially glorious picture, doesn't it? To God is ascribed all that the false teachers have tried to strip away from Him in their context. Glory, majesty, dominion and authority... They've sought to strip those things away from him, and it's all ascribed to him here in verse 25. The holiness that they rail against is required of us because God is gloriously majestic. The submission and obedience that these teachers cannot stand is unavoidable because to him belong dominion and authority. And it's a hopelessly inescapable reality because it is the case before all time and now and forever. And in the only way proper for us on this side of the cross, Jude knows enough to specify that all of this resides and flows, he says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It all flows there. You remember verse 4? They sought to deny him his place as our only master and Lord. But in him it remains. It always has and it always will. Do you see the confidence that he leaves his hearers with? I close this this morning with the uh, realities of Romans chapter 8 that jump out in light of what we've seen in Jude this summer. Uh, Let me just read these. They're in chapter 8 of Romans. But don't these jump out in light of what we've seen? If God is for us, Who can be against us? And in the very next verse, he answers the question, how? How is he for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our hope and this is our pursuit. And we who pursue him by the strength of God will never, not one, be disappointed. Would you pray with me? Father, these are are precious truths to us. You know our frame, and you know the times that you have called for us to live. You know our weaknesses, and you know the temptations within and without. Father, we are grateful for the powerful reminders that we've seen in this letter that we must fight to be a confident, joyful people because we only have reason to be those things. Yours is the victory. You have called us to yourself before time began, which, Jude says, is to say that we have been loved and kept by you and for you. We thank you for those reminders Equally, as we thank you for the commands and warnings that accompany them. That we may not celebrate early. There is danger around us. And it's only by pursuing the path that you have laid for us. That we can be safe. Thank you, Father, for your word that is, so, is such a gift to us. Help us, Lord, individually and help us corporately to be a people defined by our love and submission to your word. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction this morning? We've studied such a great benediction. There's no reason to go elsewhere. So let me uh, dismiss you with verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling